I uh, heard this week of a couple that was married, married for 60 years. There's a couple that in their marriage, they didn't have any secrets. They told everything to each other all the time. They didn't keep anything from each other except for one thing. The wife, when they got married, she had a shoebox. And she told her husband, I, I just want you to uh, not ask me about the shoebox and don't look in the shoebox. And everything will be okay. The husband agreed and she put the shoebox in her closet above, up top. And the husband, you know, for the first year or two really kind of thought about it and questioned some things about it and wondered about it. But, but after that, he, he just stopped thinking about it. He, he didn't even worry about it. He didn't have any questions about it. He didn't think about it for a long time. Well, after they've been married 60 years, the wife got very ill and she ended up in the hospital. And as he was sitting by her bed one day, for some reason that box came to mind and he said, you know, it's been a good 60 years. He goes, do you think it'd be okay if I saw what was in the box? And she looked at him for a minute and thought and finally said, yeah, we can do that. It's, you know, it's, it's a good thing we can do that. And so she said, won't you go get the box and bring it here and open it next to me and I'll, we'll talk about it. And so he went and he got the box and he brought it back and he was sitting beside her. She's in the hospital bed. He's sitting right beside her and he opens the box. And inside the box are two crocheted dolls and $95,000. And so he thinks, I'm going to ask about the dolls. First he said, well, what are, what are the dolls? She goes, well, the day before we got married, my grandmother said, I've got some pieces of advice for you for marriage. And she said, one of those was, she said to me, you need to try to work out every disagreement with your husband. You need to work through them. You don't let things settle. He goes, but she said, if you see that a disagreement is not going to be made okay, she said, at some point, just give in, don't say anything about it, and go in private and crochet a doll to kind of work that out of your life. So she said, that's what I did. I crocheted a doll when we had a disagreement. And so as he's sitting there, he's looking into this box, and he thinks, man, 60 years, two dolls. That's an amazing marriage. And as he starts thinking back through his 60 years, a, a tear starts to stream down his face as he thinks through, all, you know, wow, this is an amazing woman. I can't believe I've been blessed by that. He goes, all right, so what's the $95,000? He goes, Oh, every time I made one of those, I went and sold it down at the market for $5. Unresolved conflict can be a major part of life, right? Some of you all get that later, right? It can be a major part of life. In fact, not just on kind of the micro level, the husband and wife relationship, but on a world level, unresolved conflict can cause all kinds of issues, right? Like a government shutting down, right? Because of unresolved conflict. And, and we as Americans, you know, one of the things that we kind of, we, we kind of lose sight of because of the country that we live in is that unresolved conflict on a major scale is something that happens worldwide. I mean, you can travel to Ireland and there are, there are walls up dividing Protestants from Catholics. You can drive to South Africa, and for many, many years, there were walls up around African black neighborhoods that separated them from their African white neighbors. 
Growing up for me, the Berlin Wall was a major picture running right through Berlin. And on one side, East Berlin. On the other side, West Berlin. One side, communist. The other side, capitalist. It was the epicenter of that Cold War era. Even today, if you go to Israel, for instance, there are walls everywhere. I see reports and I've I've read stories about even if you, let's say you and your family took a trip over to Israel and you decided we'd love to see Bethlehem. Doesn't that sound like a nice place to go, Bethlehem? So I heard about a pastor that took a group and he took his family and said, let's go to Bethlehem. And so they went and before you get to Bethlehem, going from Jerusalem or from Israel, there is a huge wall that nobody can drive through because of their fear of suicide bombers and terrorists on both sides. And you get to the gate, and he said, I was there with an Israeli uh, tour guide and bus driver on a bus, and as we get there, he lets us all out. And he said, the pastor said, looked at the tour guide and said, aren't you going with us? He goes, no, I can't go over there, I'm... A Jew. He said, the bus can't go over there because it's Jewish. I don't know how you determine whether a bus is Jewish or not. but And the driver can't go over there. So he's going to let you all. You will walk through security. On the other side, there will be another bus, driver, and tour guide that will take you to Bethlehem. They will drop you back off at the wall. You will walk through and we'll be here to pick you up. Unresolved conflict is a real thing. Today we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be starting in verse 11 in just a minute. And what's interesting about that is, is how sometimes physical realities speak to spiritual realities. And we talk about all these walls, and in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is actually going to mention a wall. And he's going to describe for them what Christ has done in tearing down a wall. But what I want to do today, before we kind of get there, is to realize the wall that was there to begin with. And here's where we're going today, okay? Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about our identity in Christ. Who do we think we are? And we talked about the fact that we've been blessed and that we've been rescued, that we've been validated, that we've been accepted, that that God looks at us and appreciates us. In fact, three main points have been that we are that I am blessed, I am appreciated, that I am rescued. Well, what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, is he moves from individual. All that stuff was individual. You are blessed. You are appreciated. You are rescued. And he begins to focus now on a broader of what it looks like for all of us to be in Christ together. And as he focuses on that broader picture of what it looks like for us to be Christ together, he's going to remind us of another word that, that repeats some of the things that we have heard, but also brings a new dimension to it because of the horizontal relationships we have. He says, not only have you been blessed by God, not only have you been appreciated by God, not only have you been rescued by God, but he's going to tell them, he's going to use this word called Reconciliation. And he's going to remind us that for those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, I am reconciled. And that's a big word. In fact, Paul uses that word several times throughout the New Testament. 
But in Ephesians, it's a little different because he doesn't just use the word reconcile. He adds a prefix to the front of it. He adds something onto it that he never did and had not been seen in literature before. So people don't really know what he means except to say, you have been like really reconciled, super reconciled, above and beyond reconciled. He's going to remind them that what has happened in their life is something that is important for them to know and to sense. But it's also to remind them of the implications it has for the way we treat each other. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. If you have Bibles, if not, you can just kind of listen as I read. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. All right, what are Gentiles here? Non-Jewish people, all right? So if you are non-Jewish in this room today, you are a Gentile. Called, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. We'll get to that in a minute. Which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of the prophets, having no hope and without God in the world. That's pretty bad. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinance, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Let me talk to you for a second. Here's what's, what happened. That, using that phrase, dividing wall of hostility, for many of them would have brought them back to an image of the temple. And, and several months ago, several weeks ago, we talked about the temple on a Sunday morning through the tabernacle and the way that God had established a certain routine in order to come into the presence of God and to hear from Him. What had happened from the time that God established the tabernacle and the temple is that the Jewish people had established not that God was wanting people to come into His presence, but that there was a means of excluding people from His presence. And so the walls had been set up, the curtains had been set up, and the laws had been given in order to keep people out instead of inviting people in. So you had the Holy of Holies, right? The center of the temple. Only one priest once a year went into the Holy of Holies and there was a curtain around it. And outside of that was the place where the Jewish men could come. Nobody else but Jewish men. So you had the Holy of Holies. One person, once a year, that's it. Outside of that, just Jewish men could come there. A little farther out, just Jewish women. That's all that could, that you, you couldn't, if you were not, if you were Jewish women, you could only go so far. After that, Jewish men. After that, the priests. And then outside of the Jewish women's court, there was what they called the court of Gentiles, which was really far away, where if you were a Gentile and you wanted to know about God, you could maybe hang out there, but you really couldn't do anything about it. And what happened is that instead of that being a way for Gentiles to learn and to know about God, which God intended, it became a dividing wall for other people. In fact, it became the kind of thing that the Jewish people had this proud, haughty attitude towards anybody else. Shown here by the nickname they gave them. Okay? He said, you are part of called the uncircumcised, and we are part of the group called 
the circumcised. Now, sociologists have determined that you give nicknames to people you either really like or you really don't. This was not a term of endearment. All right? Where does it come from? Well, it comes all the way back from Abraham. Y'all remember Abraham back in the Old Testament, right? Abraham, a lot of people trace their line back to Abraham. And Abraham was a guy that was just a, a guy living and God calls him out. And, and Abraham starts living, believing in this promise of God. But Abraham had two women in his life. Which is one too many, right? Right? Y'all acting like, no, that's normal. That's... Two is one too many, all right? And so he had one who was not a wife but a concubine, and that was Hagar. And they were supposed to have this kid. Him and Sarah were supposed to have this kid. They couldn't have a kid. They couldn't have a kid. Then before we jump on them too much, okay, we're talking about they're in their 70s and 80s and they haven't had a kid, all right? Usually by that time, if you haven't had a kid, guess what? You're not going to have a kid, all right? And so she says, go get Hagar, um, have a kid with Hagar. And so he does, and that kid's name is? Ishmael, alright? So he has Ishmael. And then later God says, I can't believe you didn't wait. I'm promising Abraham at the ripe old age of 99 gets told you're about to have one in a year. Now, like I said, let's don't jump on Abraham. I mean, if you had waited something for 70 years, you might not think it was coming either, right? I get impatient when Amazon doesn't give me my two-day delivery, alright? We're talking 70 years. So, you got this two wives, or one wife, one concubine, two children, Ishmael and Isaac. And there was a debate among the family who was the firstborn. Who was the son born first? Ishmael. But Isaac is the firstborn. And so you had some people that said, we're following Abraham and Isaac, that is the firstborn, that's who we're following. You have some other people that are saying, we're following Ishmael, and they split. Then Abraham, to show who are the people that are following him and the God he serves, says that everybody that is a male that is following me and that believes Isaac is the one and everybody of that family, we're going to be circumcised. And those of you that are not following, you are not. And that's how we'll know the difference between our people and them. Just a little note, by the way. Aren't you glad that whole conflict got worked out? No, it's still going, right? That wall in Bethlehem is between the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael. Isn't that crazy? I mean, some of you have family that's been going on for two or three weeks and you don't know how. We're talking about thousands of years. So Abraham's people are these people that have circumcised, and when they see other people, they just call them the uncircumcised, which means the not close to God, the far away, the evil, the ones that nobody wants to be around. In fact, they did not like Gentiles. I mean, they saw them as the mortal enemies of God, and there was no redeeming value in them. In fact, if there had been a little Jewish boy and a little Gentile boy playing, which would not have happened, but if they would have been playing, and the other guy said, well, tell me about your Bible, and he could start telling him, goes, well, are we in the Bible? Yeah, you're in the Bible. You ever heard of the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans, or the evil king Nebuchadnezzar, or Jezebel, or you ever heard of uh, Goliath, David Goliath? Oh, I love David Goliath. Yeah, Goliath is your guy. David's ours. This was an old school western. The Jews wear the white hats, the Gentiles wear the... 
black hats, you're always the bad guy, always the worst ones, always that. In fact, I just want you to hear a couple of things, kind of what they believed about Gentiles. Here's one of the things they believed about Gentiles. They said that Gentiles were created by God because he needed kindling for hell. That's, that's bad, right? Can you imagine if somebody said that on like a national news program today? I mean, that's bad. In fact, they were taught, if you're going down the street, you're a Jewish man, a Jewish woman, you're going down the street and you see a Gentile woman giving birth and struggling, do not stop to help her because you might be bringing another Gentile into the world. We don't need that. If, in a classic Romeo and Juliet, but actually it would be, I guess Romeo and Juliet would be like this because it would have been before Romeo and Juliet. If a Gentile girl, I mean boy, and a Jewish girl fell in love and decided they wanted to be together, if that were to happen in Orthodox, traditional Jewish life, they would have a funeral for the girl when she married the Gentile. Because she no longer existed to them. I think hostility is a pretty good word, right? A dividing wall of hostility. And the Jews kind of had this pride about it. They said, listen, it's all because of who we are. God chose Abraham. God came through Abraham. All the prophets come from his family. All the priests and kings from one family. The book is primarily about our family. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's our family. God says we're the apple of his eye. God says he chose us. He's our father. We have eternal life. We are the chosen ones. We're the good people. If you'd like to consider or join our religion, you can do that. There are several steps that you need to do. You need to learn to change your language. You need to be circumcised. You need to change your diet. You need to celebrate our holidays. You can't do those things the pagans do. Even if you're cultural, even if they're okay, you can't do any of that. You've got to stop and do everything the way we do it. And even after you do that, you be one of us, but not really. You'll be second class one of us. Now what's interesting is if you read the Scripture, there is absolutely no reason for them to have that kind of view about themselves. You know what Abraham was before God called him? A pagan Gentile. Where was he from? Somebody knows this. Bible's trivia people out there. Where's, where's Abraham from? Ur of the Chaldees, right? Of the Chaldeans, of the Babylonians, Ur of the... People that are against God. And if you look at the ancestry of Abraham, what you discover is that Abraham himself, his family all had pagan God names. God looks at him and says, I want you and I want your family and I'm going to make you a special people. Why? To bless the entire world. Well, at least Abraham was righteous and good all the time, right? Besides that adultery thing. And... The two times he was scared and so he told everybody his wife was his sister so that she could be with another man so that he wouldn't get killed. Except for those things. Well, at least the Jewish people had always been just right and always holy, right? No, God kind of tells them they're ridiculous and he's tired of them and his immorality is too much and they keep doing their own thing. They had no reason to kind of have this haughty attitude, but Jesus walks into a world where they do. It is us and them, Gentile and Jew, separated. Jesus walks into that and he is, Jesus is Jewish. All his disciples are Jewish. 
All of his ministry happens primarily in a Jewish arena. He does go into Samaria, but they're half Jews. He dies on the cross for our sins. He's saved. The first church is predominantly Jewish right there in Jerusalem. But as the message begins to spread out, it becomes evident that this message is reaching people that are not Jewish. And Gentiles start to hear and say, I want this Jesus. I want to be forgiven of sins. The Holy Spirit is coming in their lives. And the synagogues don't know what to do with them. All these people that were far from God are coming to God. And Jesus is saving them. And they're asking questions the Jewish synagogue is not prepared to answer. I mean, read the book of 1 Corinthians. They're asking, is homosexuality okay? Because we used to do that back then. What about going to the temple um, for the pagan prostitutes? Can we still go to the prostitutes at the pagan temples? And Oh, that food that we ate, it was sacrificed idols. Can we do that? That was pretty good stuff. Can we still do that? Oh, and I'd like to marry my mother-in-law. Is that okay? And the Jewish people are like, what are these questions? No! No, you can't. No, we don't ask. We don't even ask those questions here. Aren't you glad churches aren't like that today? They're shocked. Like, what do you, what do you mean? We got to have a council. We got to we got to figure this out. And so in Acts 15, they have a big council, and they're they're trying to figure out what do we do with these people? How do we put them in the church? They don't know how to act. They don't have to sing. They don't know how to worship. They don't know how to do any of this stuff. What do we do with them? Ephesians, Paul reminds us of the answer to that solution. And it, it, that solution to that issue, and it is amazing. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that, that that you just keep being who you are. He says that when you come in Christ, you are no longer Jew or Gentile. You are in Christ. Now, a couple of things about that, that that he was reminding the people, what he's saying there, all that stuff I read. You you were far from God. You were without hope. You were without God. He's not saying to the Jewish people, and you were really close, and so you were better. He's saying we were all that way. There are a couple of things. First of all, our past, although maybe although it may be important, should not define us once we become believers in Jesus Christ. And secondly, we all need to be reminded, like the Jews need to be reminded. Most of us don't have to go very far back into our lives to see people that we are embarrassed or not really excited that they're part of our family. You see, sometimes as southern, predominantly white, Christian people, we can kind of get kind of haughty and proud. Well, I come from a good family. They've done a lot for this community. They've been in church for their whole lives. I grew up in church. I'm a good person. I'm somebody that's done all the right things. I'm raising my kids in the correct way. I'm using all the right things. We're not listening and watching the things that we shouldn't listen or watch. We are good people. And you get the sense that it's us. And the Jews need to be reminded, you don't have to go very far back in their line to find some people that were messed up. Most of us don't have to go very far back in our line to find people that are messed up in our family. And we are here only by the grace of God. Amen? If you, if you can say amen to that, then you need to do some Ancestry.com. All right? I mean, I'm just removed a, a generation or two away from somebody that alcohol ruled his life. And he died at a very early age before I ever met him, two generations ago. And from families that were not, and my grandmother was, was a lady that never really involved in one church very long, jumped all over the place. Nobody in that family was Baptist for sure. That's two generations. That's not very long. Some of you say, I don't have to go two generations back. It's just, hi, dad. Or, look at me. 
Now here's what it says. That in Christ, we are brand new race. And what used to be important shouldn't be important anymore. Because we're in Christ. I mean, we think we have cultural divides in our country. It is nothing compared to Jews and Gentiles in the first century. We think we have serious issues across the aisle. It is nothing compared to first century Jew and Gentile. And if Christ can reconcile those two things, it is no reason that those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ ought to have anything separating us. Paul looks at this answer. He comes up with kind of a new humanity, a third thing. And he says basically that our primary primary identity is in Christ. For Jews, your primary identity is no longer Jewish. It is in Christ. For Gentiles, your primary identity is no longer Gentile. It's in Christ. For whites in America, your, long, your predominant identity is no longer I'm a white in America. It is I am in Christ. For African Americans in America, it's not I'm African American. It is I am in Christ. For those of you from wealthy, good families, that is not your identity. You are in Christ. For those of you who are poor and from places that you don't know how you're going to get out of, that is not your identity. You are in Christ. If you are in Christ, that is the primary identity you have. Everything else is secondary. In a distant second. He says there is no difference. Now, I I want you to hear this from the Jewish person's mindset when he says that you're in Christ, so is this Gentile, and there is no difference at all between you. You know, sometimes, sometimes when 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 I've been to Brazil, I'll be sitting around in a room with some guys. And and usually this happens on Tuesday or Wednesday, and we're talking about the service at the end of the week, and we're just talking about different kind of things. And and for a fleeting moment in my mind, there'll be that understanding that, boy, I just wish they could do it like we do it. I mean, um, those of you that haven't been in Brazilian service, for instance, they, they have microphones mess up every service. I mean, mine's coming in and out a little bit now. Every service. And while they're talking, they just unscrew it. Somebody comes, screws it back in, hands it to them. They've got a guy over there doing the things. If it starts, something's going on, they'll walk right up in front of the preacher, stand right beside him, do things. People are walking in and out. They're talking while preaching's going on. And you're just like, what, you know, what in the world? It's a, it's a, it's an experience. Those of you that have been, amen? It's great. I love it. It's an experience. I mean, I have the kind of thing, you know, they, they are, their pews are white plastic chairs that I have personally broken about 20 of. Okay? I mean, and they're in the middle of a service and all that, you're, they want you to sit right on the front row because you're their honored guest. Then right in the middle of their service, all of a sudden they'll come talking to you in Portuguese and that means you've got to get up because we're about to do something that needs where you are. And you just get up and you walk away and, you know, can you imagine American church? Everybody, well, I've done this and y'all don't move. You know, everybody move to the middle. You know, I mean, people are just kind of moving around. And, you just, and there'll be this fleeting moment of, man, if, if they just do it like we do it, it'd be, it'd be good. Or in the ministry, some of the people in our ministries will have ways that we think it ought to be done. And the Brazilians will come in and they'll rearrange and they'll do things and they'll do things and they'll do it like they're, if they would just listen to me. And sometimes, to be honest, that comes from an attitude of, we got it figured out and they don't. And I'll be usually in that kind of moment. It happened this year. We were sitting there, and at lunch, some pastors from around came in and started talking. 
And as they started talking and sharing what God was doing in their life, God just hit me like a lightning bolt again and says, they're the ones i got to figure it out. Sometimes because we live in a place with affluence and we have stuff, we think we must be a little better. No difference. One of the worst experiences on a Brazil trip like that is when you're done with the trip and you're getting back on the plane and you're exhausted and you've had a great week and you're emotional and all you want to do is get on that plane and sleep. And you know what you have to walk past to get to the back of the plane? First class. And you see people that are there drinking. They've got, they've got their food all arranged. They've got their personal TV monitors. You see some have already got their, their chairs reclined to 100 degrees. That's flat. The, the chairs in economy go about 2 degrees. I guess they'd be 92 degrees, right? Last year, I was sitting on the edge and I'd just gotten in the comfortable position and was going to sleep. And Eli was beside me. I mean, you know, those of you that are, how many of you have ever flown overnight in a plane in the economy? I don't want to hear first class stories, all right? You know that you can't get comfortable, but right, you've, every once in a while you'll find that position and you know it's only going to last about 45 minutes to an hour before something on your body is going to be in piercing pain, right? And as I just get in that position, Eli says, Dad, i got to go to the bathroom. Can you hold it like three hours? No. And as he does, I think, well, I might as well. And I, all of them are closed, except they let at middle of the night, sometimes they'll let you go to the front. And I got to the place, they had the place open, and everybody in first class, full laid out, blankets and pillows out. And that's where the coveting and the envying is in full scale, right? Well, here's the point. For us as believers in Jesus, there is no first class, second class economy. In fact, we're all first class in the kingdom of God. And he looks at the Jews and the Gentiles and says, you can't debate about what's happening between you because you are one. In God's economy, He loves us all, kids. Black, white, rich, poor, young, old, Asian, Hispanic, male, female, Democrat, Republican. He loves all His kids equally. He places the Holy Spirit in each of them. And every one of us has access to their dad. Equally. The wall of hostility has been torn down. That's an amazing thing. That means that the stuff that was in the past no longer defines us. That means that, that, that we can trust in the Lord. And it means that we have to be real careful about making cultural preferences into cultural prejudices. There are ways and things that we like and we like the way they do them. That doesn't mean they're better. That doesn't mean that they are the only way. We have to be real careful to walk that line. He reminds them of the fact that they're reconciled, and then he gives them two ways they're reconciled. He says, first of all, you're reconciled to God through Jesus. I mean, if you think it's amazing that God reconciled Jews and Gentiles, think about Him reconciling us to Him. I mean, think about the differences between us. Creator, created. Holy sinner, 
infinite, finite, sinned against God. As a result, there is this wall of hostility. Listen to Ephesians 2, 15 through 18. He says, he did this. He says, all of you were that way. To create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might, reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off. For through him, through Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Here's the thing. He says, listen, you want to talk about a wall of hostility? Think about the wall you built between God by your own choices, by your own decisions, by your own acts, by your own sins. You continually, by will and by nature, built this wall between you and God that was impenetrable, that could not do anything about. You continually, by your choices, by your actions, by your words, by your deeds, you built up a wall upon a wall upon a wall that was thicker and taller all the time, and you couldn't do a thing about it. We are sinners. And so in God's holy place, living where it's holy, while we live in the unholy, living where there is no sin, while we live in a place inundated, flooded with sin, when He lived in a place that is pure and right, and we are in a place that is marred and dark, when He lived in a place with no death, and we live in a place where death is all around us, He looked and there was that wall of hostility that we had built between us and Him. And as He looked down, the only solution He had was in Jesus to sit there. As Jesus was here and He walked the earth and He died for our sins, He tore down the wall. The curtain was literally ripped in two and access was given to the Father. If you're in Christ, He died in your place and He tore down the wall of hostility. But here's what I want us to focus on today because we talked about that for the last few weeks a little bit. Here's what I want us to focus on today as we kind of finish up. As we have been reconciled to God through Jesus, we have been also reconciled to others through Jesus. He says He's reconciled both you to God and removed hostility. He says this in verse 19 through 22. He says, So, in light of Jesus, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints. That's our identity. We are citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple. In Him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He says, listen, it used to be that there was a temple that you walked up to and you had to use temple language, you had to do temple things, and you're moving that all the way up. But let me tell you something that's happening. Now God has come into you and you no longer have to go to a holy place because God is building you into a holy people. And you've been brought together. Now here's what I love. He compares us all to stones that are being built upon each other. And part of what the marvel of Christianity is to be is that God takes crazy, weird stones and makes a beautiful masterpiece. Amen? We got some weird stones around here. Amen? I mean, some of you are weird, all right? And one of the things is people from the outside are supposed to look and go, how in the world are they all working together? How are they all fitting together? How is it all coming together? And it's only through God in Jesus that we're all kind of built upon each other into this beautiful temple. When you think about it says that we would be a better temple than one of the eight wonders of the ancient world. You're beautiful and used 
But it only comes when we realize that all of us have been reconciled by Christ and as a result, we are one in Him. So here's the question today. Who do you need to be reconciled with in your life? The hardest one is family, okay? So is there family, brother, sister, mother, father, son, daughter, that you need to repair that relationship Maybe you both say you're believers and you think, well, how in the world can we be separated if we're believers? Maybe they're not, but you know your step of faith ought to be reaching out to them. Who do you need to be reconciled with? Maybe it's a friendship that has gone by the wayside. Maybe it's somebody in this church that, that you've gotten crossways with. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a past relationship or friendship that you have. Who is it that because of what Christ has done in reconciling you to Him... You need to reconcile with someone else. This morning, I wonder if you'll ask the Lord to show you who that is in your life. Let's pray.